Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Well, good morning. We're so glad that you've joined us for our weekly Bible study and Lifeline Children's Services. We are looking at a passage uh, in Acts 22, beginning in verse 22 through Acts 23, verse 11. Last week, Herbie led us to see that Paul had been speaking to a large crowd in Jerusalem, and we saw that with Paul's testimony of conversion, how Jesus had revealed himself to Paul on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, and how the words that Paul heard changed the course of his life. And we see in Acts 22, 14 through 15, that Ananias tells Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And we concluded last week with Acts twenty two twenty one, which was Paul's testimony that God's word to him was this, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And we rejoice in this word, for as most of us are Gentiles, we know and love Jesus because of Paul and others after him brought the message of Jesus both to our fathers and to us. But this is not how the Jewish crowd reacts when Paul tells them that God had sent him to the Gentiles. So let's look Uh, Picking up in Acts 22, verse 22, the word of the Lord. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, 
I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's courage and for your protection as we consider these verses this morning. Would you use uh, the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to teach our hearts and to uh, remind us to be courageous and to testify about you and your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've looked at this passage uh, briefly as I've read it, I want to bring to mind three important truths that we see in this passage. The first is this. Number one, religious truth often upsets religious people. Religious truth often upsets religious people. We've seen beginning in verse 22 that the crowd is incensed. And according to them, it's for really good reason. Here's this man, Paul, telling God's Israel that the way in which God brings people into relationship with him has changed. After thousands of years, Paul is saying that the old rules no longer apply. Well, how so? Well, since the time of Abraham's covenant with God, men were expected to undergo circumcision before they could be considered part of God's family. It was a physical marker of a spiritual reality. And here is Paul, in essence, saying that God has changed the playbook, that circumcision is no longer required in order to come to God. As one commentator on the passage described, the Gentiles can be approached directly with God's message of salvation without first being related to the nation and its institutions. This was the height of apostasy to claim that Gentiles could be on equal footing with Jesus. And so this is why the leaders want to kill him. Look again in verse 22. He should not be allowed to live. They are outraged that he is making this claim that, that Gentiles can come to God apart from becoming Jewish first. Now, this had already been settled among Jewish Christians in Acts 15. We saw at the Jerusalem Council that the, the, the church leaders decided that uh, Gentiles who wanted to come to faith in Jesus did not have to become Jewish first. So this is, this is not an issue among, among the church, but this is a Jewish crowd. And they have no concept of knowing God apart from undergoing Abraham's circumcision first. And so they're outraged. 
And I, as I was thinking about this particular part of the passage, I noticed some, some striking similarities between this episode and Acts chapter 7. And as with Acts 22, we see in Acts 7, Stephen's stoning takes place as he is testifying before the Sanhedrin. And in both instances, the crowd or, or the, the Sanhedrin listen for a while, and then they become outraged at something that either Paul says or something Stephen says. And in both instances, uh, those gathered around, they take off their outer garment. And Paul knows the level of their anger towards him in Acts 22 uh, when, when the crowd, according to verse 23, they, they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Paul knows this level of anger because he watched this same thing happen in Acts 7 when, when the crowd uh, took off their, 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 their outer coat and laid it at Paul's feet and then began to stone Stephen. And so he knows uh, the, the, the extremity of anger and frustration by this Jewish crowd. And there's a, a, a Roman commander. He is he's called the, the Tribune. Uh, and, and he is trying to figure out what, what's going on here. He is not beholden to Jewish law. He is not a, a worshiper of, of, of God or of Jesus. He simply has been appointed by Rome to keep the peace in Jerusalem. And so he's losing control of this situation and he's losing patience. And so in verse 24, he orders that Paul should be brought into the barracks and to be examined by flogging to find out why uh, Paul is in this situation, why the crowd is so upset with him. Essentially, he is ordering Paul to be tortured uh, until Paul tells the truth. And this torture in this passage is called flogging. And it was a far worse offense or far worse experience than undergoing a Jewish beating or even feeling the rod of the municipal authority. Uh, the Roman practice of flogging or, uh, or scourging is uh, said to uh, be varied with the victim's status. So if you were a slave or a non-Roman citizen, you were going to be whipped with a, 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 a knotted leather cord. And at the end of each cord, there was going to be uh, a bone fragments or rocks that were tied into it. And so when you got whipped, every time it was not only the leather straps ripping open the flesh of your back, but it was also these, these, uh, these rocks or bone fragments or metal. A Roman flogging with such a whip would cripple uh, one for life or could even kill somebody. For some reason, the Romans thought that people always told the truth when they were under severe pain like this. But we know that that when we're beaten this badly, most likely people won't necessarily tell the truth. They'll just say what their captors, what they believe their captors want to hear. And so Paul was about to receive a flogging, which is, if you remember, the exact same punishment that Jesus endures under Pontius Pilate. In John 18, Jesus undergoes a scourging or a flogging and this is the picture that we have right before Jesus is led off to Golgotha. And remember, Paul has, has been beaten with rods on three occasions. 
and he's been sentenced five times to the disciplinary lash inflicted by the Jewish synagogue authorities. So Paul is not unaccustomed to receiving physical pain as a part of his preaching, but none of these penalties had the murderous quality of a Roman flogging. And so it's clear that Paul's declaration of, of Gentile equality is the cause of, of this, uh, this kerfuffle. But we know that speaking truthfully about God is upsetting to those who hold to their own traditions about God. Just about a week or two ago, I had the opportunity to have dinner with one of my neighbors. He invited some friends over. We met some folks and I began talking about what I do for a living with one of the ladies. And it turns out that for a number of years, she had worked in the uh, private adoption world as well for another agency. And she told me that she was Christian and that she had worked for a particular agency for a number of years. And she had uh, invited her uh, friend, who was also a social worker, to apply for a position, but they turned her down, uh, not because she wasn't qualified from the social work side, but because she was not a believer in Jesus. And this lady that I was having dinner with just said, I just couldn't work for a company that treated people that way, that, that, uh, that wouldn't give somebody a job just because they didn't share the same religion. And, and, and it wasn't necessarily the time or the place to talk about convictions, um, but at Lifeline, we are uh, thoroughly convictional about what we believe about who Jesus is, the families that we want to work with, the families that we serve, the adoptions that we help facilitate, and the folks that we employ. And so we are unashamedly uh, convictional. And and had I had the right opportunity to share with her, I, I'm, I'm confident that she, number one, she would not have agreed with me. And number two, she she likely would have been pretty upset on more than one occasion. She used this common phrase, my truth, right? But my truth is that 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 religion is is uh, personal and you should keep to yourself and it shouldn't get in the way of of hiring um, decisions. And so uh, I just I, I'm confident that if I would have pressed it would have been upsetting because she claimed to have been a religious person, but I would have brought in religious truth, religious truth about the exclusivity of Jesus and it, it, and it would not have gone well for her. But here's Paul proclaiming that, that men and women who are not Jewish still have the opportunity to get to God apart from going through Jewish religion. And it, upset, it upsets the Jewish crowd so much that they want to flog or uh, they, they want to kill him. And then ultimately the Roman official um, declares that he needs to be flogged in order to get the truth out of him. And so Christians can't shrink back from proclaiming religious truths, whether, whether our audience likes it or not, whether it upsets them or not. So truth number one, religious truth often upsets religious people. Truth number two, Christians can use government to their benefit. Number two, Christians can use government to their benefit. Look, uh, beginning in verse 25, as Paul has been stretched out and is about to be flogged, he asks the, the military official next to him, is it lawful for you to flog a man 
who is both a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And the answer is clearly no. We know both by the implication of this passage and by reading extra biblical sources that it was against Roman law to flog a Roman citizen, especially one who had not already been condemned by a court. And so citizenship was a highly prized commodity in Paul's day. Very few had official Roman citizenship, and it was limited to those of high standing or those who had performed some exceptional service for the government. Now, there was another way that you could obtain citizenship, and that was that if you bribed an official in order to have your name um, uh, uh, listed among the citizens. And so this is what appears to have happened uh, with the uh, tribune in verse uh, 20, uh, in 20, uh, 28. He says, uh, he, the tribune asks Paul, are you a citizen? Paul says, yes. Verse 28, the tribune answers, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. That is, it is highly likely that he paid or he bribed another citizen, another Roman official, to have his name added to the citizen list. And so the implication is for this tribune that he paid a very high price in order to obtain his citizenship. And here is Paul. He's, uh, he's, he's been traveling for months and months. He's probably a little ragged. Uh, he's he's uh, been uh, likely uh, uh, at some point hit or bruised in some capacity among his travels uh, in, in Jerusalem so far. And he's not clean shaven and he probably doesn't have clean clothes on. And so the, the official looks at him and says, I paid a large amount of money for my citizenship and apparently the value of citizenship has dropped greatly if a person like you could also afford to buy your way into Rome like I did. But Paul's response is shocking to the tribune. In verse 28, Paul says, I am a citizen by birth. So two ways to, uh, to, to, to possess Roman citizenship. One is to bribe an official uh, to, to buy it. Or number two is to be born into a family that already possessed citizenship. And this is what Paul declares, that at least his father possessed citizenship and at his birth, uh, Roman citizenship was passed down to him. We might be able to speculate that it would go beyond his father. Maybe Paul's grandfather would have also been a Roman citizen. Uh, it could be that one of them rendered valuable service to a Roman general and was granted a citizenship at one point. But Paul's claim to citizenship saves him from flogging. And it saves the tribute from breaking the law because it was against the law to, to flog a Roman citizen. And so uh, William Wilmington, a commentator on this passage, writes that Paul's appeal to his Roman citizenship as a, as a protection against examination by torture thus suggests that Christians may be free to use their legal rights, even those bestowed upon them by pagan governments, as protection against injustice and as a means of enabling them to witness to the truth of Christ. And we see this in our time. Just a few years ago, back in 2016, there was a, a, a very important case that made its way through the lower courts and ultimately landed at the Supreme Court. And in 2016, they handed down a decision in which they, they sided with the little sisters of the poor 
that the government could not make these Catholic nuns violate their religious beliefs by requiring them to pay for contraceptives as a part of their health care plan. The government said it was against their religious convictions and it was, um, it, it was illegal uh, for uh, the Affordable Care Act to require them to go against their conscience. And so we see in this instance in 2016 that it is a, is a fair and good and biblical use of government to help Christians uh, be able to worship rightly. I did a little bit of digging. I wanted to find at least one other court case, and I found something that was, I thought, incredibly interesting. About 50 years ago, in 1963, the Supreme Court ruled that the state of South Carolina still owed unemployment benefits to a man who had been offered a job, but he turned the job down because it required him to work on the Sabbath. And in that instance, what we see is... a. a the way unemployment works is that the government will give you some money week to week in order to uh, uh, pay your bills, but you've got you've to be searching for employment. And so in this instance, he found a job, he was offered the job, but the job required him to work on Sunday. And he said, my conscience won't let me do that. So he turned the job down and the state said, well, you were given the opportunity for a job and you turned it down. So we don't owe you unemployment benefits any longer. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't. You can't force a man or a woman to work on a, on a, on a day of, of worship in order to absolve them from their unemployment benefits. And so there are many, I think, between, uh, within American Christianity who fear or despise our government, that they, they, they want nothing to do with the government. They think it's evil, they think it's wretched, and they don't want the government to be involved in their lives at all. There are American Christians on the other side who act in such a way that, that it almost seems like they believe that it's government's job to make life easy for Christians. They should do everything in their power uh, basically to make Christianity the religion of, of the country. And I think that the truth is not found in either of these extremes, but somewhere in the middle. We're not beholden to any ruler or any king other than King Jesus, but we are permitted to make use of the laws to protect us as often as is possible. So I would remind you that we see in this passage that Christians can use government to their benefit. So we've talked about religious truths upset religious people. We've talked about how Christians have the opportunity to use laws to their benefit. And then the third truth, and this is just fundamental to who we are as Christians, is truth number three. Christianity's claim of a physical resurrection is core to who we are and what we believe. Look beginning in Acts 22, verse 30. Paul is, uh, he, he is saved from the lash and from the flogging, but the uh, the the the. the Roman rulers still don't know why there's this great disturbance. And so it says, beginning in verse 30, the next day, desiring to know the real reason why, why Paul was being accused by the Jews, uh, the, the tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set them before them. That is, he called together the Sanhedrin, the ruling leaders of the nation of Israel, both Pharisees and Sadducees, 
to, to let Paul speak to them so that they could ascertain, so the Romans could ascertain what the, what the charge was against him. And, and as Paul began to speak, the high priest orders that Paul be struck on the mouth. And at this time period, the high priest's name is Ananias. He was a very corrupt man. When we think about a high priest, we, we, we think back to the Old Testament. We think about Aaron and his line and how high priests every year went into uh, the tabernacle and, and worshiped and gave uh, the, the sacrifice. And they, they led the country in the religious aspects. But when we get to Jesus's time and in the early church, the high priest is a very political office and, and very corrupt. And so Ananias was a very unethical man. He, uh, he embezzled tithes and stole from priests. He handed out bribes. And so just very unethical. And so here he is, and he, 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 uh, he tells people standing next to Paul to slap Paul in the mouth for the things that he begins to say in Acts 23. And Paul is caught off guard, and he's, I, it, it looks to me like he's angry. He's stung uh, by this command. And so he lashes back at the high priest. He says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Paul had not yet been found guilty. He had not been tried or found guilty uh, of any infraction of the Jewish law. He hadn't even been officially charged with any infraction. So for him to be struck or, or for the high priest to command him to be struck as though he was guilty of a crime violated the very law that the high priest claimed to uphold since presumption of innocence was a safeguard of Jewish law. But just as Paul is protected by the law, he also demonstrates that he is submissive to the law. When someone in the crowd says, uh, would you revile God's high priest? Paul says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it was written, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And so Paul confesses that that. Had he known that that's who he was speaking to, he would have probably chosen his words differently. And so the, the, the story changes a little bit here, and, 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 and it's, it's, his argument is not going well. He's, he's, he's kind of been shut down by the high priest, and so he changes gears, and he realizes, Luke says, that the crowd in front of him is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, and they have a strong, strong disagreement among themselves as to what the world looks like, how it works. The Sadducees believe only in material things, that you have a body and that when you die, that's it. There's no afterlife, there's no resurrection, there's no soul, just life on earth. The Pharisees, though, uh, see things much differently. They believe in a spirit, they believe in angels, they believe in non-material uh, existence, they believe in a resurrection. And so Paul very shrewdly divides this council on the fundamental issue of resurrection. And Paul's appeal to the resurrection is more than just a hope in the raising of the dead as a general belief. That's, that was kind of the Pharisees' understanding of resurrection, that there was a general resurrection, that everyone would be raised. Paul believes that there's no resurrection without Jesus. So the true hope is really in the one that, that was raised from the dead already, that Paul's hope is centered in him. And so Paul's question is whether Jesus has been raised. And we see this interest in Jesus' resurrection at various places in Acts. 
It begins with Peter's uh, 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 sermon at Pentecost, which births the church. It's found in Paul's earliest preaching in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13. For Paul, the resurrection of Christ is the basis of our hope and the good news that Christians would also be raised to, to immortal life. Remember, just chronologically, we're talking about this instance in Acts 22 and 23 occurring approximately between 57 to 59 AD. Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus comes somewhere around 32 to 33 AD. And so Paul has been a Christian for 22 to 25 years. He has, he has been discipled. He has made multiple missionary journeys. He has already written the majority of his canonical corpus by the time he stands in front of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, AD 57 to 59. He's written Galatians. He's written 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He's written 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He's written the book of Romans. He has written extensively on the resurrection. And now he has the opportunity to defend it before the Sanhedrin. And so I just wanted to, to take a minute as we close and go back over a couple of verses that, that was within this corpus that Paul has already written to look at a couple of his thoughts on the resurrection. So, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or what Paul says in Romans 4, 24 and 25, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Or later on in Romans 8, 9 through 11, when Paul is addressing how Christ works in us through the Spirit, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you give to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Or probably what is the most important resurrection passage in all of the New Testament comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to zoom in just on verses 16 and 17 where Paul declares the value of, of Jesus' resurrection and then how it relates to us and our resurrection. He writes, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So as we close, I just I want to remind you, to encourage you, that the resurrection is central to the Christian gospel. It's not just that God loves us. It's not just that Jesus was sent to teach us about God. It's that Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He died, he was buried, and he was resurrected on the third day. We cannot leave out the doctrine of the resurrection as we tell people of the good news. The passage ends 
by the crowd being upset and or the Sadducees being upset and divided over this discussion of resurrection. And they begin to get violent and the tribune is afraid that Paul is gonna be torn to pieces. So he commands the soldiers to, to pull Paul away, brings them back to the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And I just, I think there's a great word of encouragement there that as Paul is proclaiming the good news of Jesus and Jesus is with him and, and, and reminds him or exhorts him to take courage that Jesus is with you and Jesus is with me, as we testify of the facts of who Jesus is, of his life, of his death, and of his resurrection, and despite the opposition, Jesus is with us as we, as we proclaim who he is to unbelievers. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.